I'd like you to open your Bible, if you have one, to the book of Acts. Now, if you're new to the Bible, there's two sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written before the, uh, the life of Jesus, his birth, ministry. Uh, and then the New Testament was written after that. The first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, deal with the life and the ministry of Jesus. And then the very next book is a history book recounting the progress of that first century church. The work of those 12 that Jesus left behind to spread this gospel of the kingdom. And it talks about the growth and the trials and all that they went through and how other people joined this movement. Among them, Paul and Silas. Now, Acts 16 is where we're going to open up to today. And there's a story here. Paul and Silas were in Philippi, which was a Roman province. And Paul and Silas both had Roman citizenship. They were Jews who had Roman citizenship because they had been born in a Roman province. And regardless of who you are, if you were born in a Roman province, you had Roman citizenship. That afforded certain legal rights that the general population did not have, but Paul and Silas had. While they were in Philippi, they, um, they cast out a demon in a slave girl. Now, this girl was owned by people who were using her as kind of a sideshow attraction. She was a, a circus sideshow freak, so to speak. And people would pay to watch her do whatever she did as a demon-possessed girl. It was a terrible life for her. But they were making money off of her. Paul and Silas saw her suffering and delivered her from the demon, which meant her owners could not make money anymore. They were angry, so they reported these men to the magistrates. The local magistrates did not check to see if these two Jews had Roman citizenship. They arrested them. They flogged them, which was against the law. They imprisoned them without a trial. All of this was illegal. Paul and Silas were in prison, but they saw it as suffering for the sake of the gospel, and so they chose to, to rejoice. In spite of the fact that they were bleeding, that they had open wounds, that they were imprisoned in a dark dungeon, they started to sing and to pray. And that, their prayers and their songs changed the atmosphere of that darkness. It changed the other prisoners. Even the jailers began to notice something was going on. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. We find it now in Acts, the book of Acts, uh, starting with uh, chapter 16, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Something happened in that prison cell before the earthquake. Because when the earthquake happened and the walls came down, the chains were loosened, and, and the doors were open, the other prisoners, along with Paul and Silas, just stayed with them. I don't know why. Perhaps they felt it was safer with these two men than it would be out in the streets with an earthquake. Maybe that's it. Maybe Paul and Silas had gained such an influence over these criminals, that, or whoever they were, that... They said, no, stay here, let's wait. Don't go out, wait here. God has another purpose for us. I don't know, but for whatever reason, no one left the jail. Now in those days, 
in Rome, if you were the jailer, the one responsible for the prisons, and there was a prison break, and people got out, you as the jailer would then be arrested, you would be tried and executed because you were responsible. This man knew that. It would be an ending of ignominy for him, his life and his family, and he decided with the walls open like this, these guys are gone, I'm not even gonna check. It means my life is over. He drew his sword and was about ready to do himself in. Paul, recognizing that would be going on, perhaps he heard the jailer outside, knew what was going on, and he wanted to save the man's life. And so he alerted him. He cried out to him, don't harm yourself. Don't do it. Everyone's here. No one has escaped. We're here, and your life is safe. Don't hurt yourself. That stunned the man. It absolutely stunned him. He'd had this near-death experience. He was sure his life was over. He was sure that life held nothing more for him, that he would be arrested, he would be tried, and certainly convicted and executed. That near-death experience shocked him. Sometimes it takes something like that to jolt us. A near-death experience. Maybe you've had something like that on the highway where you can't figure out how you didn't die in an accident or how you missed the accident. Or maybe the doctor said, cancer, you're going to die, and you didn't. Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. But I know when we have those near-death experiences or when our life seems to be jolted like this, in some way, some trauma experiences, it changes us. Because all of a sudden, the things that used to matter don't matter anymore. As a pastor and a chaplain, I've attended over 500 deaths. 500 times I've been with a person when they died. And I've had the opportunity to prepare a lot of those people for their death. Some, not so much. I was called into an ER, they were unconscious, I was just there when they died. But others, I was able to help. And when you talk to people about their life at that point, a lot of things don't matter anymore. I've never had anyone about to die say, man, I wish I'd bought one more new Cadillac, or you know, I wish I had another set of clothes. I, I wish, man, I, no one's ever said this. I wish I'd gotten that promotion. No one cares. What they care about is, man, I, I wish I'd taken better care of my family. I'm worried about them. I love them, my friends, my loved ones. They worried about that. They, they will ask questions like, did my life really matter? What was it about? Did I waste the time I had? Did I make a difference? Will anyone care? Will anyone remember? And then the other thing has to do with spirituality and eternity. It's amazing how many professed atheists I've had worried about those things as suddenly now they're, they're facing death. Worried now, was I wrong? Is there really a God? Do I have an opportunity for eternity or has that ship already sailed? Maybe that's happened to you. It certainly happened to the jailer. All of a sudden, his life has changed because of this jolt. And he comes into clear focus what matters to him and what does not. And so the next verse, verse 29 and he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. After he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
That jolt changed him. It brought into clear focus the things that matter and the things that don't matter. Before the jolt, he's worried about, am I going to get a promotion? Uh, am I taking care of my family? Uh, am I, uh, uh, do I have enough money for a vacation? Whatever else it may be. Those were the worries. And all of a sudden, none of that mattered. None of it. Something is important in life. This man had been a pagan. And systems of paganism have very little hope. Very few of them would ever have hope for something beyond the grave. A few do, but even that's clouded in mysticism and mystery with no real hope of exactly how to get there to be assured of it. Most secular systems are systems without hope. I remember I took some training once and, and the, professor, the, the leader of the training uh, was a, a secularist and he, he, quoted, he quoted a philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, and he said, the, the quote was, if one understands the why, one can endure anyhow. And he said, that's it. You have to know what your why is, then you can endure anything. The problem is that he misquoted, he took the, the quote out of context. Sartre was a nihilist. He said, there is no reason to life. There is no hope. There's no rhyme, no reason to it. And he said, the only question that one should ask oneself is whether or not one should commit suicide. And Sartre, mysteriously enough, had decided that it was not time for him to commit suicide because his job was to tell people what the question was. That's his purpose for living. Eventually, Sartre did kill himself because he saw no purpose, no meaning, no meaning, no why to life. All is nothingness. We live, we die, that's it. And there's no reason for it. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no reason to be here. Nothing is fulfilling, all is emptiness. That's Sartre. And so he did eventually kill himself. That's most secular systems. Eventually it comes down to that. It, it even affects advertising. You'll hear the themes that you know, if you're a, a philosophy geek like I am at times, that you begin to hear, all right, I don't know where that came from. I know where this came from. Uh, I took some other training and I knew exactly where the guy had stolen his material too. Uh, secular humanism and I knew exactly that where it had originated. That's what drives our planet. And that was driving this man. There was no hope. And all of a sudden he heard these men talking of hope and they had joy that he didn't have. And when his life was jolted and he thought it was all over, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there was this glimmer, maybe me too. What if they're right? What if there's something more, something better? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Is there hope for me? Is there something I can do? Let me know because what I've got is worthless. The answer came in verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you're in your household. He might have been expecting that there would be some great journey or some great sacrifice he had to make, some God to appease. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice there's no systematic theology that they had to embrace before salvation. There's no 28 fundamentals that you have to embrace before salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
denominations, we have systemized theology, we have fundamental beliefs, and those have value. But the vast majority of them are not salvific. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That was the message, pure and simple. It was true then, it's true today. There's value in other things. Salvation comes from believing in the Lord Jesus. Period, full stop, end the sentence, change paragraphs, it's over. That's what it requires. You and your household, they said. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. That means he took him out of the prison cell. Let's go into my home. Everybody wake up. Listen to what these guys have to say. We're paying attention to this because I've just had a real strange experience. They all listened as Paul and Silas talked about Jesus. They talked about the man who had been foretold by prophecy, who the God who was pre-existing, who became a baby in human flesh, who lived and died and rose again and promised to return. Believe in this one who paid the price for your sins and you will be saved. There's a progression here for salvation to occur. The first is to recognize that life is meaningless without him, that we are broken, that we're not full, we're not whole, that there's something wrong inside of us. And that's true for all of us. I don't care how nice you clean up to come to church. There's something wrong inside of you because there is inside of me too. Something that is broken, something that is self-centered and selfish. When we acknowledge that, that no amount of good works will change that, that we are who we are, that we need outside help, that's step number one. Step number two, someone has to tell us about Jesus and instruct us as to who he was, who he is, and what he's done for us. That's what Paul and Silas were doing. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And so they told him about the preexistent God who became a baby and paid the price for your brokenness and my brokenness. And then they ushered, they issued an invitation, an invitation to make a commitment, to make a commitment. Verse 33, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, as an interesting word, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Jesus was presented and they made a commitment and then they, they entered into a physical act which commemorated and publicized, so to speak, that commitment. And that is the act of baptism. Now baptism, to, to baptize means to immerse, to dunk. And it re is representative of an ending of the old life. When we die, we're buried in the ground, right? And then we, if we are believers, we have full hope of eventually a resurrection and ascending to be with Jesus. But Jesus did that for us. He lived, he died for us, he was buried, and he rose again. And so when we are baptized, we say, I'm going to borrow that death as payment for my sins that makes me whole and changes me from the inside out. And I'm going to symbolize this by, by um, play-acting my death and burial. We're buried into the watery grave and then resurrected again to newness of life. 
that which is old, all that record of sin, all those, that broken past, washed away as far as God's concerned and doesn't even uh, exist. We are now new creatures in him. A fresh start because we are whole in him. Now, baptism doesn't save you. You're saved because you believe in the Lord Jesus. Baptism is the symbol that we have been saved. It just is an announcement. Uh, when, when you uh, are a young person, you find a loved, uh, uh, someone you love, you want to spend your life together, you make a commitment to each other. And then you show the commitment of your love through a ceremony. It can be public, it can be private, it can be big, it can be small. I've done hundreds of these. I've, I've, I've attended hundreds more, like you have no doubt. But you go through the ceremony, and the ceremony has value. Because first of all, it's a proclamation to everyone. We have fallen in love and we've made a lifelong commitment. That means that I'm off the market, so to speak. <laughs> and we are together. This is our intent, is to live together as a couple from now on. That's what it tells us. And then every time you attend a wedding, you're reminded of your wedding. I remember when I walked down the aisle. I remember when I stood in front of the preacher trembling like crazy. I remember when I said, I do, and I still do. It reminds you of that, right? You're not married because you went through the ceremony. You're married because you made a commitment. The ceremony finalized it. The ceremony didn't make you fall in love. You fell in love first, and then you got married. The same thing with baptism. You fall in love with Jesus, and you commemorate, you, you marry him through the act of baptism. And then every time you witness a baptism, you remember yours and your commitment that you belong to him, and he belongs to you, and nothing's going to separate that. That's the value of this. And so this man and his entire family were baptized. Now, this is a, a strange thing to people who are, who are not believers. And it even seems somewhat undignified. And yeah, it, it is, really. And part of that is the whole point. Showing uh, our own humility and our own helplessness. And so we get into water and we get dunked in front of a whole bunch of people. And so, yeah, it feels weird. And, but, you know, if you're just coming to faith... It, it, it just seems a little bit strange. And I remember pastoring in Arlington, Texas years ago, and there was a retired gentleman who, with his wife, were coming to our church. And then they, their, their children moved close to them, and they had two grandchildren, one five and one seven, two little girls, they're precious kids, but they had never been to church before in their lives. And so grandma and grandpa started bringing them to church. And so they were coming for a few weeks, and in that Arlington church, on the front, it looks like there's one big wall back there, but there are actually some doors, and you can open the doors, and inside that would be the baptistry. Well, those doors had been closed the first few weeks that they attended, and then one week they came into the church, and the doors were open, and they saw the pool. They saw the, the glass and the water there, and their eyes got big, and the five-year-old said, Grandpa, they got a swimming pool in this church. The seven-year-old said, that's not a swimming pool, that's a fish pond. It's not a fish pond. There are no fish in it. It is too a fish pond. Grandpa, let's go buy some fish so they'll have some fish for their pond. That's not. And so the argument goes back and forth, and Grandpa's not saying anything because he's enjoying this. It's amazing. When you're a parent, you want to instruct. When you're a grandparent, you want to be entertained. <laughs> he's being entertained by this, man. He's just enjoying the daylights out of it. And they're going back and forth, and then finally, all of a sudden, 
a preacher steps into the water and someone comes with the preacher. The preacher says a few words and the kids are just dumbfounded by this. And all of a sudden the preacher dunks the other person <laughs> in the water and they get out. And then the five-year-old said, told you it was a swimming pool. <laughs> well, I've laughed about that story forever. I, I, the, when he told me the story, I, I laughed like crazy. But it does point out just how ridiculous it seems to people. But God has a way of taking things that seem silly and turning them into the greatest truths. We celebrate communion. We take bread, wine, and water, and we celebrate the basics of the gospel. Right there, everything you need to know to be saved is symbolized in those emblems. And baptism tells you the old life is gone. And it will change you. The jailer was changed from being the guy who perhaps was even flogging prisoners, now being the guy who's cleaning wounds and feeding people, taking care of people, bringing them into his house, the prisoners. It already started inside. Something happens inside of you. He had hope. Hope. Hope drives the world. Hope makes you a different person. Hope changes you from the inside out. It makes you better than you ever dared dream possible. Hope. One of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption. And uh, one character said to the other, said to Red, this gives me hope. And Red said, hope is a dangerous thing. <laughs> because if you don't believe there's a reason for hope, then hope can drive you crazy. But we have a reason for hope. And hope won't drive you crazy, it'll give you joy. It'll change your life from the inside out. So, as I just mentioned, he set food before them and rejoiced greatly. Let's look at an example of baptism in another story, going back to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, chapter 3, starting with verse 13. We're going to talk about how Jesus was baptized. Now, baptism is for the remission of sins. Jesus was without sin. And yet he was baptized. Let's take a look at this. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee, starting with verse 13, from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to, to fulfill all righteousness, or in other words, to give an example of righteousness. This is what we do. This is what people will do when they confess their sins, they receive me as their savior, they will show that by baptism. Then he permitted him. And so Jesus was being baptized by John. John was baptizing in the Jordan and, and the scripture tells us he found a place where there was a, a, a enough water. It was deep enough that he could get out into it and dunk people. It was easy to do that. That's where he preached. And he preached the, the, the confession, the remission of sins, and then he baptized people that day. Sometimes we confuse baptism as the sign that you've accepted everything the church teaches and you've got everything in line and all your old bad habits are gone. I don't find the biblical example of that. I don't find that in scripture. People believed in that day were baptized. Pentecost, same way. There was belief, there was baptism. You're members. Now, let's learn, let's grow together, let's allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. That's the biblical example. 
And that's what happened uh, in, in so many of the, the examples we find with Paul and Silas, we find it with, uh, with the disciples of, of Christ and Pentecost and goes on and on. But here Jesus says, here's the example. When you believe in me, your sins are forgiven, hope enters into you, and we commemorate it with this ceremony. So people will see the old you is gone and the new you has now arrived. Baptism changes. But baptism is a full commitment. When you get married, you don't make a halfway commitment because that's a halfway marriage and halfway marriages don't last. It's gotta be all in. There's a story about a young man who, um, he's pastoring in Texas now, but while he was still in college, he was doing an internship and he went, went overseas to East Malaysia to do some work there. And the church he was attending he was helping with that church as a part of his mission project. And he came to church one week and he saw some luggage, two or three suitcases, leaned up against the wall in the back of the church. He asked the pastor what, what those were there for. He said, oh, there's a young lady who's going to be baptized today. She's 16. She announced to her family that she was going to be baptized, that she made a decision for Jesus. And they told her, if you're baptized, don't you dare bother to come home because you're dead to us. So she packed her stuff. She's here with her suitcases because she knows there's no going home. Baptism is all in. It's you and the Lord. I have no idea if baptism will cost you something or if it has cost you something. But baptism says it's all in. It's you and me. It's time to make an all-in commitment because that's the only commitment that lasts. It's you and it's him. And that's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be baptized, is what scripture teaches. Some of you are old enough to remember a legendary broadcaster, Pat Summerall, who along with John Madden were the voice of football for so long. They were the gold standard of, of broadcasting football games. And Pat Summerall had a lifelong addiction to alcohol. But getting sober, he found Jesus. And Summerall became a Christian. And he talked about the hope that he had now and the joy and how all that, this baptism changed him. As he became a Christian, he said, I went down into the water and when I came up, it was like a 40 pound weight had been lifted from me. I had a happier life, a healthy life and a more positive feeling about life than ever before. That's what hope does. But then he talked about the Christian life and prayer and Bible study, and he talked about his new addiction. It was no longer alcohol, it's prayer and Bible study. He said, it's like an alcoholic looking for a drink. If he wants it bad enough, he can find it, no matter what. I've liked that when it comes to finding prayer services and Bible studies. No matter where I am working, whatever city he's broadcasting a game from, I know that they're out there, and I can find them. What about you? Have you made that all-out commitment to Jesus? Have you said, Lord, it's you and me. It's you and me. I've got no hope without you. I'm broken inside and I need something. But knowing who you are and what you've done for me, I want to make the commitment and I want to do it today. Have you done that? And then have you taken the next step, the step of the public ceremony, commemorating your decision to follow Jesus all the way, saying, it's me and Jesus now. We're a thing. We're an item. 
because the old me is dying and the new me is born again. You've not done that. And you'd like to, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, speak to me, Pastor Manny, Pastor Peter, any one of our staff, tell one of us, and we will help you arrange for that to happen in your life. Because this is the instruction of Jesus. This is the decision, this is the process for finding hope and eternity with the one who has loved you all along. I covet that experience for you. I know it's going to bring you joy. God bless you as you